Improving health literacy, the ability to understand and act on health information, is key to improving health outcomes and lowering costs. Welcome to the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. For show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Paul, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You and I have known each other for many years, seen quite an evolution in the industry, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. But before we do that, for people who don't really know your background and haven't researched it on LinkedIn or what have you, can you just give a little overview of where you've been and kind of what you're up to now? Sure, glad to, Seth, and it's my pleasure to join and chat with you. As you know, you've been our go-to faculty member for many years as your capacity to ask good questions and be evocative and provocative at the same time is always a pleasure. So I'm Paul, I'm a career health educator. My training, my PhD is in health education, and I have had the good fortune throughout my career so far to work in pretty much every aspect of public health, health education, and healthcare, meaning I started in program delivery, I would run health promotion programs. I ended up moving into product development, so I built a lot of health literacy kind of products like health assessment and self-care books and self-care research campaigns. I have been in research as well. I headed up a research unit at a major medical center for many years, and so most of my career, like yours, has been in healthcare in a large medical center named Park Nicollet and the Park Nicollet Institute. Went over to the private sector, which is always a thrilling ride, and work with a large a wellness company that served companies throughout the United States. I've sat across you quite often when you were at Mercer helping employers decide on a wellness company. I would have to answer your tough questions then. So I know what it's like to be across your grilling. And then I've worked in the nonprofit sector as well. Most recently, of course, I'm at Hero. I was the president and CEO for a while, and now I'm a senior fellow at Hero. And my role there is to carry on with education research work specific to population health, employer health, and wellness. I will say this with all due respect, such an illustrious career, and you've contributed in so many ways. You didn't talk about your being an editor in the journal, your Fulbright work, scholarship, your book that you wrote that really brings a lot of attention to some of the tough health challenges in Africa, but really want to appreciate that and acknowledge it and also know that you and I swapped like I was at stay well then you were at stay well actually you were at stay well I was at stay well then you were at stay well so let me ask you this because you started off with this I knew you had I wasn't quite sure what your PhD was in so here it is you were in health education I will just be kind and say way back when because (laughs) of similar generation but did you know it's kind of funny maybe not at the time but did you have something that kind of guided you in all your career choices and your path in this space? You know, a lot of people talk about purpose and values, but I don't know how much we really articulated it. Or did you kind of have a sense you always wanted to do something? Did you have a purpose or a guiding set of principles? Yeah, I've speculated sometimes that purpose is a bit overrated and that intrinsic motivation alone may be overrated. I think I attached that to some of my early career choices, which was I assumed I would be a health education teacher 
and a men's college gymnastics coach. Okay. So I was a gymnast in college and did pretty well and loved that sport and loved coaching others. You just kind of figure out success of approximations work. And if someone wants to get better at something, you just sort of move them through very predictable behavior change skill set. And I think I've kind of carried that through my health coaching career, even my executive leadership career. And, you know, of course, I'm interested in people's motivation and purpose is important, but I tend to be someone who, like you, stays quite curious. You often say, you know, let's stay curious when you're facilitating groups. So I just think professionally I've stayed curious and that has led me to a variety of things that I continue to want to learn about and write about and grow into understanding better. And I think if I were to characterize my path, especially in leadership, which is part of the hardest part of my path has always been when I've had leadership roles, I always feel more comfortable as a technical expert than as an organizational leader, just because leadership stretches you so much. And so if I've landed on anything that drives me in my leadership roles that I've had over the years, it's probably this bromide of servant leadership. I just want to be of good use. I want to be a good partner. I want to support people. I want to help out. I want to get you. And that, you know, it's kept me going. I just want to be a good partner to help people succeed and help communities succeed, help organizations succeed. And I think as your career's evolved, you've kind of moved from that coach to maybe, as you say, more of a servant leader. So really cool stuff. Speaking of which, so let's talk about HERO for a second. Our, you know, one of our favorite little organizations. So HERO, standing for Health Enhancement Research Organization. I think we're pushing 30 years in the industry. As you mentioned, you were CEO. Now you're a senior fellow there. You know, I was chair at one point there. I've been on the board. I'm on advisory. We are strong advocates of this organization. But Talk a little bit about what your agenda is and how you play out in this, because you play a very important role in that organization. Yeah, I love this role. It just feels like it's so ready-made for where I'm at in my career at this point. One thing that you and I share in common is being handpicked by HERO. This is a professional association. It's been around for 20 years. Its mission for all of those 20 years essentially is to try to improve best practices in worksite health promotion, population health improvement, and especially I think stands out in its ability to bridge the public sector, the private sector, the academic sector, the healthcare sector. So it really is a bridge builder, a bridge crosser. What you and I share in common is quite flattering to have been in the field for a while and have all your professional colleagues who have also been around for a while say, you ought to come and be our board chair, or you ought to come and run the place for a while. Yeah. So, you know, it's really a feather in your camp. You know, we hang on to people like you, as you know, what, eight, 12 years? Usually a board term is four years, but then as soon as we start getting you in that executive leadership talents into you, that hang on to you for a decade or, or more. So thank you for all your leadership for HERO. In terms of my agenda at HERO, I follow the flag. Karen Mosley is our president and CEO, and she works with the board now in terms of setting priorities. She's done a great job of yes, setting research priorities for HERO as well as sort of our organizational operations priorities. My role primarily is in the education side. As much as I continue to support research, we recruited another big deal uh, researcher in our field, a woman named Sarah Johnson. So she, with Mary Bowden, ends up the research side, and I tend to stay focused on our forum. We have an annual forum, which we're always trying to push the boundaries for the health promotion profession in terms of the themes we pick. And then I run our think tanks. We have four different think tanks a year. And just those titles, I suppose, of the think tanks tend to reflect our agenda and what we're working on. So we've had 
think tanks on loneliness and think tanks on belongingness and think tanks on social determinants of health and health disparities. And so those uh, topics people don't typically think of in this well-being space. So our think tanks, which you help stretch us for, are things like, so how does spirituality and loneliness and these affect overall well-being? Especially, I think, on that point, Seth, in terms of stretching the profession, it's probably been, well, I've been here, what, five, six, seven, eight years. Okay, keep track. <laughs> but I don't think we've had a conference on nutrition or right. fitness or stress management, or, you know, reduce the weight of the population for eight, 10 years. And it's not that we've not solved for those problems. And it's not that those aren't eminently important to an employer and to society writ large. But I do think the field is matured to understand that unless we sort of also deal with these mental health, social health, cultural health influencers, that, you know, we're not going to be affected in supporting people on weight management journey, for example. So I love that we've matured and are thinking about what it takes, including health literacy kinds of issues that I know you're focused on. Yeah. And I do want to talk about that for a second. Remind me, we've got a three forum, do we not? That's correct. So effectively, we're going to look at the integration of the ESG movement, the environmental social governance movement that is sort of the yeah. next generation of Conscious capitalism or corporate social responsibility, which you know gets expressed more often as the role of companies in satisfying their ESG requirements. Often people in finance look at a company's impact on the planet yeah, via some yeah, of these absolutely. ESG metrics. And our question that's going to be in Salt Lake City, we're going to ask, how well are we doing in terms of alignments between the population health, the employee health promotion movement? and the ESG movement. Interesting. Great stuff. So let's talk. You brought up the health literacy. I thank you for doing that because you know that's one of my hot topics these days. You're a health educator by training and done so much of it. And again, a very humble description of your background, but you've been a leader in this space for us in so many ways. So I'm hot on this thing that says, why the heck haven't we been doing more on this? Why have we stayed in this kind of brochure where patient education, you know, like it's an afterthought. Doctors are still scribbling on a notepad to show you what they're going to cut your knee in and all these things. When we have what I call a real opportunity to move to this health literacy 2.0 using behavioral science data and multimedia YouTube-like information to really help people understand and have skills and resources to move through the system. So what am I missing? I feel like I'm alone out here. (laughs) You're where you ought to be and where the field needs to head next. Let me commend two resources to you to just affirm how important this question you're asking is. You brought to me, my friend Seth, it's probably over a year ago, a podcast called The Rabbit Hole done by the New York Times. It is just a disturbing and evocative and provocative recitation about how disinformation is gripping our society and how Mm -hmm. our inability to tell misinformation from credible information is, you know, not just serendipity, it's almost a methodical and planful, you know, sort of one of the obvious promulgators of disinformation, but it goes on and on over a series of podcasts. So like you commended to me, I would commend to your listeners today, if you're not convinced that Seth in health literacy, it's an important topic. Go listen to the rabbit hole. But to return the favor, one of my favorite podcasts is the Ezra Klein Show, also hosted by the New York Times. 
he hosted a woman named Marianne Wolf that you got to go listen to, Seth, in your passion for health literacy. And I think everyone ought to listen to. She's an expert, Marianne Wolf, in deep reading. Mm. And what her research is, which is new to me, but I just was riveted by her expertise in this. And as her client's such a great interviewer to pull out all of her science behind her premise that we have grown to be a society that she calls cognitively impatient. Between the neuroplasticity of those of us who grew up reading books and hard copy things, compared to what's happening to our next generation of leaders who are scrolling and scanning and skimming through media that's overwhelming in its constancy. And she studies the difference between your ability to read and reflect and absorb content compared to the digital media world that our attention spans are just chronically looking for more stimulation. And so I think your work now in health literacy is so critical because I think with new media and with the enormous both potential but also harms that are starting to emanate from the flood of information that we're all absorbing every day, that we have to incorporate that into any health promotion strategy. We want people to learn differently, behave differently, interact with society differently. We've got to get on top of the literacy issues that we're all struggling with. That's so interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, being a bit of a skimmer when it comes to reading myself, you know, I appreciate that, but I also appreciate that deep reading. It's kind of a profound moment where you're just deep and your brain is doing this. We're all talking about meditation and other things, but you read a book that does something to the brain, right? There, it's yeah. different than you know scrolling on your phone and catching absolutely. Well, and Marianne Wolf, in trying to help people understand how to get back to a capacity for reflection, she actually brings up meditation practice as something of a corollary with reading practice. And the thing that I think you'll appreciate is also a trained public health leader for the field is the more I listened to that podcast, the more I was reminded of Ben Franklin's old quote, or it's probably an old Chinese quote, but it's that. Tell me and I'll forget. Show me and I'll remember, but involve me and I'll understand. And that quote, the wisdom of that quote is expressed in her research by finding that you and I have seen over and over that you have to give people the capacity to interact with content, that just to passively read something is one thing, but to actually come to a think tank and talk to others about an issue or get on an app and actually have to give information back and get to get information back or to have skills that relate to navigating instead of just, you know, cruising through content is all part of this involved me in all of stand price. I love it. And it does remind me, you did defer to me on this rabbit hole thing. We did a whole think tank on this, this malinformation. And it was inspired by that. I listened to that and I said, oh yeah, we got to get after this. Yeah. Uh, for all the reasons. And then we got a living example of it in COVID, of yeah. just one example of how the information around vaccines and COVID and what it was and how to sort through it and how challenging that was for people. No blame here anywhere. It's yeah. just very challenging. So, well, let me switch gears for a second here. So you talked that a hero is kind of a best practice, you know, and we've done research. I've had the good fortune to publish some articles with you and some chapters and all the rest on this. We continue to hope that we are doing good around trying to provide best practices. In the well-being space right now, for those that are listening, employers, maybe some nonprofit government organizations, universities, whoever it is that have an interest, have a stake in this game, 
I'll let you riff on a little bit of what do you see as best practices in this space as it's evolved? Yeah. Actually, it's always easy for me to answer based on what I'm working on right now. The next thing, it's a members only think tank that Hero will sponsor. So Hero members, hundreds, some companies will come together. We're going to be down in North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And we are examining the total health worker premise. And the total health worker premise asks mostly, there's 10 centers of excellence in the nation that NIOSH is funded to go after this question of what does total worker health look like. It generally asks two or three things. First, why isn't there deeper integration between health services like safety, like health promotion, like employee assistance programs, argues essentially that the better those are integrated and planned for, the better, more effective they'll be. But if there's a shift going on our field that I, you know, sign me up for this shift if it is happening, it's that where this field was built over the last 20 years of looking at employee health and how to improve employee health such that it'll improve their productivity and reduce healthcare costs and help manage the healthcare cost burden. If there's a shift going on, it's not asking how health impacts work, it's asking how work impacts health. And more specifically, these NIOSH centers are really interested in work redesign, uh, really interested in the environment, really interested in the conditions of work, really interested in like what our last thing tank was about, hybrid workforces and what those changing dynamics and the workforce itself, the work space itself, the work itself, how that's impacting mental health more generally. The third thing that I think is sort of a real priority for our field, I think healthcare is in one way ahead of the health promotion movement in that in the 20 years I worked there, the thing that was growing most was something called patient-centered care. Patient-centered care, if you look at the textbook definition from the Institute of Medicine, patient-centered care is care that is respectful of and responsive to patient values, needs, and interests, and assures that all clinical decision-making is based on patient values. That movement is also, in my view, what I'm learning about, they're very interested in the voice of the employee. They're very interested in how it is that whatever we bring together in terms of health improvement initiatives are guided by the needs and values of the employees themselves. So those three things, Seth, one, you know, related to better integration, one related to thinking about health rather than just about health and work. And lastly, the voice of the consumer, the voice of the end user, the voice of the patient. I love it. I'm going to touch on each of these real quick. I'm going to go backwards. The voice of the patient is so interesting to me because for so long, we've been talking about consumer and Mm -hmm. consumer oriented things. And that has always bothered me because of the consumer. It's basically a behavior of purchase. That's all we care about. And mm-hmm. so it's not really the values. It's not really any of these other issues you're talking about. As we look at people as consumers, as opposed to patients or, you know, God forbid, human beings mm-hmm. <laughs> that have all these needs and social circumstances is very different than, oh, how do I get them to click, to buy, et cetera? Or in our world, we've shifted in this healthcare yeah. thing. How do I get them to play the health game? So I love that orientation, and I think maybe we're getting there. I'm always an optimist, a glass half full guy. I do take issue, this thing about, you know, does work affect health or does health affect work and all of that. We used to have this thing, you know, is the person environment fit? 
in the old days, right? What's the fit? And so in some cases, like it's just a bad fit. In other Mm -hmm. cases, it is a toxic place and you need to fix it up. But sometimes, look, this isn't a good fit for you. You can leave. I'm not a must kind of guy, but hey, Twitter's going to be different. Now. It's yeah. a very interesting play. It's yeah. always been hard for a health educator or types uh, like us to come in and do organizational development, organizational change. So hmm. tricky, but I like it. I would and- speculate that that trend may well be a partly a function of a less than 3% unemployment economy. That... In yep, this kind sure. of a lean workforce economy, I think the receptivity of leaders to say, geez, maybe I better look at my environment as it relates to keeping people or getting people to come here because I can't find the help I need to get the work done. Absolutely. And we're kind of fortunate like that. So you see all the perks and how can I make people happy? So get back to a 6% unemployment economy. It's back to improve your health, damn it, because I don't want to pay the bills for this anymore. <laughs> exactly. No more free food for you. And then the first one, you know, safety and the integration is so core to what we've talked about an overall culture, right? And that you get silos are so such a disservice to the mission. And it's always been a bit of a head scratcher. I think we understand it as businesses are structured, but why do you have occupational health here and safety here and human resources even separate from benefits in some companies? So I think those are three really interesting practices and themes, Paul. The integration question, you know, we'll just tackle it by putting the private sector alongside some of these academics in the Center of Excellence and just kind of go at it for a couple of days and say, why the big gap between what researchers say ought to happen, what private sector leaders are really doing. The thing that will overlap for both sectors, I believe, is again, back to Hero's role, Hero's research is partly abetted by our Hero Scorecard in cooperation with Mercer. So the Hero Scorecard is up to almost 3,000 companies have filled out this best practices scorecard about how the way I organize my wellness is consistent with or different from how other organizations are doing it. They can compare their Hero Scorecard data with sectors like theirs in terms of how well they're ranking. What we find on this question of integration, because we ask it, is that... Only about 25% of all these companies who are pretty activated just because they want to fill out the scorecard have written strategic plans. And we find also with some regularity that those with written strategic plans are more probable, more likely to be able to mark that they've had some health improvement impact on the population or even some cost impact relative to the business outcomes. So we hammer at that, Seth, in terms of we don't just say do it more comprehensively, do it more strategically and integrated, we say, do it with a plan, you know, have a plan. And anytime you ask most organizations, do your wellness people plan with your safety people? And do they plan together with the EAP people? As you know, as someone who's put together these vendor summits for years, the answer is usually not very impressive in terms of the coordination and planning. Well, I think it's a great takeaway, actually, that it seems daunting, but step one You're going to work on a plan if you're the wellness leader or whoever you are. And by the way, I'd like to invite some people from the other groups to help me on my plan and have some input. Who's going to fight that? And then you start the conversation. So engagement in these programs and services has been such a push and such a challenge. I don't know whether the answer is maybe some of the shift towards a patient-valued, patient-centered approach or what it is, but do you have a quick thought on 
this issue of we provide all this great stuff. Yeah. And gosh darn it, people don't use it. What's wrong uh-huh. with them? Yeah. I give them tons of money. I do everything I can and they still won't play. Let me give you the academic answer. I used to be a health education teacher. The definition for health education, if you look at a textbook definition, is any combination of learning experiences designed to facilitate voluntary adaptations of behaviors conducive to health. So a couple of key words there that I tried to emphasize, it's combinations of learning experiences. They're not sort of a program or this one size fits all thing. You've got to keep asking, you know, what are you interested in? What do you want to do? The voluntariness thing is a pretty big deal. As a health coach who could, you know, just go from one phone call to another, people who volunteered to say, I want to talk to a health coach because I got work to do on my weight or my stress or whatever it was. I found that I was pretty busy just with the volunteers. I didn't need to go drum up everybody in the workforce. I wanted to work with them when they wanted to work with me. I did not want to work with a smoker who did not want to quit smoking. That's not sort of how our profession works. And so I find it a little troublesome when employers are expecting to see 80% engagement of their workforce doing something or another. I'm quite content personally with 20 and 30%. That feels like a lot of people in a workforce that are raising their hand and saying, I'm with you. If you're going to help me do this, I'm going to get to work on, you know, maybe your issue that you want to work on. So there's a paltry, little bit contrarian. Hey, we want people who volunteer. Let's not force them. I guess all I would add to that is hopefully with good health information and good health literacy, more people might be likely to engage in some of the screening behaviors and some of the other things that we would hope that they would do. Yeah, yeah, I just want to keep affirming, stay on this health literacy front, because again, back to the Marilyn Wolf podcast, she argues in her research that our capacity to read is being degraded every year by this flood of new media, and that she argues for something called cognitive patience. Yeah. And cognitive patience, I think, is a great little moniker to contemplate because I think our field has always kind of vacillated between winning over people's minds versus winning over people's hearts. You know, then back to your very early question about motivation and purpose. For sure, I think when I feel like the health promotion movement is at its best, it's when people are showing up because they just love doing something. They love to go to group mm-hmm. watch, or they love to volunteer together in the community, or they love to come to a medication session because they really feel like that makes their day more manageable. So I think we've got to appeal to people's hearts as much as their heads and appeal to what kind of organization you want to be, what kind of community you want to be, as we do to say, what kind of behaviors do you want to change? I love it. So my last, thank you for all of this. My last thing, we talked a little bit about Hero, but I'd be remiss if we didn't pitch it for a second. How do people learn more about Hero and can they join or how does it work? Yeah, Hero is a member-based organization. And that's what we do a lot for the health promotion community writ large. We do webinars, we have a national conference where everyone's welcome to come and do look up our website, hero.org. Not the Hero that does medications. There's a, <laughs> if you uh, Google some hero and you'll see a medication prescriber pop up, but we're the hero-health.org place. If you look it up, it's a really rich website with resources, with information about our freely available hero scorecard, with information about how to become a member at hero. We feel 
and you've been a leader in this premise for Hero, that we're not necessarily wanting to be the biggest professional association in the country. What we really want to have is a spree de corps. The members that come to Hero are those that just have a lot of passion for getting better and better at employee health and well-being and healthy workplace culture. So if you're the kind of organization that feels like you're really invested in trying to get better and better at doing well by your employees, Hero is a great place to hang with like-minded people who want to do that. It's a great way to pitch in on research for the nation. It's a great way to learn together, share your stories together, and learn from each other. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to pitch Hero. Yeah, really appreciate that. And do encourage people to go to the website. And we are looking for more members that you know are like-minded, as Paul said. So, Paul, thank you. I'm so grateful. One of our practices is grateful and appreciation. I'm grateful that you've done this. I'm grateful that we've shared careers and friendship over the years. So thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Anytime, Seth. Thanks for your good work. Thanks for joining us today on the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix, where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. Remember, for show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe and share the show with your colleagues. Thanks and see you soon.